Hi, my name's Cam. This is the Lyric Podcast, where we like to tell the stories behind songs, my songs, other people's songs, old hymns, just any songs with good stories behind them. And this week, we're looking at a song called Jude Doxology. It's a song I wrote a few years ago, and it comes out of a personal experience in my life, a personal struggle with anxiety. And as I struggled with that, I came across this passage, and this passage in the book of Jude, specifically the end of Jude, the doxology at the end, has really helped me in a struggle with anxiety. And recently I preached a sermon about this passage at Cross and Crown Church in Seattle. So I wanted to share that with you because it basically is the story behind this song. So this podcast will be a story, uh, a sermon about the book of Jude. So my name's Cam, I'm the worship pastor here at Cross and Crown, and common wisdom and church ministry strategy would say, never ever under any circumstances let the music guy preach. That's just kind of a known thing, because you never know with musicians, they might not wake up on time, they might get here and just start uh, reciting obscure poetry or song lyrics. It could turn into like a weird art show sort of thing. Uh, but in spite of all that, the other elders have invited me to preach, and uh, I'm thankful for that. It's an honor to, to be here preaching to you tonight. Um, so let's begin. Do not be anxious, Matthew 6, 25. That's what I'm here to preach to you tonight. Do not be anxious. And I'm quoting Jesus, so that gives me the license to say it with total courage and conviction. So I'll say it again, even louder. Do not be anxious. That's what I'm here to tell you. So if we're going to talk about trying to not do something, let's be clear on what that is. Let's define these terms. What is anxiety? So here's what I'm not talking about tonight. I'm not talking about the pressure you feel in your life, and I'm not talking about the stressors you feel in your life. Those things are different from anxiety. And I'm not here to tell you how to avoid those things because they can't be avoided. It's a part of all of our lives and uh, they just are. It's the reality of the situation we live in. Uh, there are good and bad stressors in your life. We all have bad stress stressors going on, sickness, loss, pain, suffering, things like that. But there's a lot of good stressors we all have in our lives as well. Every good opportunity you come across is a good stressor. Getting a new job, getting married, having kids, taking on worthwhile projects, those things are all stressors. And the stressors in our lives, they, they give us pressure. They create a sense of pressure that we all feel. But that pressure can be a good thing as well. My dad used to say, pressure is the thing that takes a piece of wire and turns it into a guitar string. So it can be a good thing, I can attest to that. As a musician, I've spent a lot of my life in uh, sweaty garages and basements doing late night band practices. And I can tell you from my experience that no good music has ever been made without a little bit of stress and pressure. It just kind of works better that way. So there can be good, there can be good stressors, there can be good pressure. But anxiety is different. The pressure you feel is external, but anxiety is internal. The pressure and stressors of your life 
are out there, anxiety is in here, the stress and pressure of your life, is, it's your situation, but anxiety is in your heart. So with anxiety, I'm talking about that feeling of crushing weight that many of us feel, the pressure weighing down on you, worry, doubt, fear. Am I gonna get the job? Will I be okay? Are my investments secure? Is my front door secure? Am I gonna die? Fear, worry, anxiety. So are you anxious tonight? We do live in Seattle after all. I read this recently, Forbes magazine actually rated Seattle in the top 10 most stressed out cities in the country. So there's an accomplishment for us. We're actually in front of Houston, which is surprising to me. My wife's from Houston and that city is stressful. Uh, but well, hey, we beat them, so we're doing good on that. So I won't ask for a show of hands, but I think if we're honest, we've all felt anxiety in some way. Many of us are experiencing anxiety even now so now that we've, are kind of clear on what we're talking about, I'll try it again, in case it didn't work the first time. Do not be anxious. Again, these are Jesus' words. Jesus says this seven times in the Gospels, and then Paul repeats it again in Philippians 4. Sometimes people ask, well, is it ever okay to be anxious? Can I be anxious some of the time? In Matthew 6 and Luke 12, Jesus says, do not be anxious about your life. When Paul says it in Philippians 4, he says, do not be anxious about anything. And when I read that, your life and anything, it sounds all-inclusive to me. But in case you're not convinced by that, I think a good exercise is just to look at the list of things we're not supposed to be anxious about and the order that they appear in the New Testament. So here it goes. Do not be anxious about your life. Do not be anxious about anything. Do not be anxious about what you should eat, drink, or wear. Do not be anxious about tomorrow. And you might still ask, well, what about really high stress, really intense, maybe even dangerous situations? These next few speak to that. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious about how you are to speak. That sounds ominous. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand. Being delivered over to trial sounds intense, sounds dangerous, but it says still, don't be anxious. And when they bring you before the synagogues and rulers and authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself. So it seems pretty clear, right? That's like 10 verses, case closed. We know we're not supposed to do it. Jesus says don't do it. So just don't be anxious. Just, just stop. Just don't be anxious anymore. And my question to you tonight is, does this help you in your anxiety? Is that helpful to anyone? It's not helpful to me, actually. As I, even as I read these passages, I just feel my own blood pressure rising. I just get more stressed out as I read all the things that I'm not supposed to be anxious about. And I think this is the reason why <clears throat> do not be anxious by itself just isn't very helpful to us. Because when we read the Bible, we need to remember what the Bible is primarily about. What is the Bible about? Jesus, whoa, people have got it right at every service. That's amazing. Now that could be just you know, throwing out the uh, Sunday school answer that you know will work every time, but, but even so, you were right. I've gotta give that to you. The Bible is primarily about God. It's primarily about Jesus. And when we read the Bible, we need to remember that. And we need to read the indicative of the Bible and the imperative of the Bible in the correct order and priority. So for those of you who are like me and know nothing about grammar, 
I got horrible grades and grammar in school. This is what indicative and imperative means. The indicative of the Bible is who God is and what he has done. And this comes first in priority because this is what the Bible is primarily about. It's primarily a book about God. The imperative of the Bible is also important. It is what we should do. And it's there, it's in the text, it's important, but it's second in priority because the book is primarily about God and it's only secondarily about us and how we should live. And the imperative is supposed to flow out of the indicative. And here's a biblical example of how that works. Uh, one example from 1 John 4, God loved us, that's the indicative. And so the imperative is, so we ought to love one another. We should start with the indicative, who God is and what he's done, and then the imperative, how we are to live in light of that, should flow out of it. A beautiful example of this is the way that Paul writes the book of Ephesians. If you've read Ephesians recently, Paul starts with this huge 20-minute rant about the glory of God, about all the amazing things he's done since the beginning of time, since before time, and he just goes on and on and on about how glorious and majestic God is. And then 20 minutes later, he says, so, in light of that, husbands, love your wives, Wives, submit to your husbands. It's a beautiful example of the imperative of the Bible flowing out of the indicative of the Bible. Another example is the Ten Commandments from Exodus 20. Um, does anybody know how the Ten Commandments begin? What was that? Almost. The Ten Commandments, uh, someone said, love the Lord your God. Uh, they actually begin like this. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It actually begins with God stating something about who he is and what he's done. And then, in the next breath, he moves into the imperative. So, in light of that, in light of the fact that I am your God and I've brought you out of the land of Egypt, do these two things and don't do these eight things. The Ten Commandments. So basically, all of this about the indicative and the imperative is just a way to say that I am preaching this sermon completely backwards and wrong. And I told them, don't let the worship guy preach. He's gonna mess it up, he's gonna preach it backwards. And sure enough, I did that. I started with the imperative, do not be anxious, and it didn't work. And one reason I did that is because anxiety, and especially sinful anxiety, is the perfect example of how the imperative of the Bible by itself, do not be anxious, it just isn't that helpful to us. Taking what Jesus says we are to do and forgetting who he is and what he's done isn't helpful. I mean, if you think about it, so many, religion, so many religions and so much religious activity actually stems from that, right? Accepting the commands of Jesus, accepting how he calls us to live without accepting him, without accepting who he is and what he's done. When you do that, it's just religion. And the reason that the imperative of the Bible by itself isn't helpful to us is because it's powerless. It actually does not give you the power to do what it's asking you to do. So do not be anxious doesn't give you the power to not be anxious. The power is in the indicative of the Bible. And the imperative is not the cure for your anxiety. Ever since I moved to Seattle in 2007, I've really wrestled with anxiety in my own life. The past eight years have really been the hardest years for my wife Haley and I, and I've spent a lot of that time anxious. Uh, and as I've 
kind of realized it's a problem and wanted to repent of it and wanted to work on it. As that started to happen, then I started spending a lot of time trying to fight anxiety with imperatives from the Bible. I would kind of get into this cyclical self-talk thing when I get scared or anxious uh, or feel backed into a corner. I kind of just tell myself over and over again, don't be anxious, don't be afraid, do not be anxious, do not be afraid. And those are good things, but those are in, and those are in the Bible. But it didn't help. I was still anxious. But a few years ago, I was reading the book of Jude, and I came across a really powerful indicative in Scripture. And this powerful truth has continued to help me in my anxiety. And here it is. Jude says, I need to remind you that Jesus brought you out of Egypt. Did you know that was in the Bible? I actually didn't know that was in the Bible until I read that. And it really just hit me hard, that powerful truth. I need to remind you that Jesus brought you out of Egypt. I think that that indicative about God, about who he is and what he's done, can help us today. And so we're gonna look at the book of Jude. Um, so open up your Bibles to Jude. This is the passage we're gonna be looking at. It's right before Revelation. There's only one chapter, it's a short letter. Uh, the passages will also be up on the screen. So the author, Jude, is actually Jesus' brother, or half-brother. I'm not exactly sure how that worked for them. You know, these two brothers are like, well, we have the same mom, but his dad's God, and my dad's just this guy. That must have been kind of, like, kind of bad for like the brotherly competition thing. Um, my dad can destroy your dad. That would have come up a lot. Um, but today we're gonna look at this book written by Jude, by Jesus' half-brother. And my outline is simple. It just has two points. I think most real preachers tend to do three points. I always hear like three points or nine points. Uh, but for me, I always just do two. I don't think I'm smart enough to do three. So two points that I think we can see in this, in this passage. Why we are anxious and the cure for our anxiety. So point number one, why we are anxious. The reason you're anxious is because you have a problem. And you have a problem that is very similar to the problem that this church Jude was writing to. It's very similar to the problem they had. And the problem is you're anxious because you have a tendency to forget that Jesus is Lord. We're a forgetful people. That's our problem. And when we forget that, that Jesus is Lord, all kinds of bad things happen. And so it's really that simple. That is the reason why we are anxious. And Jude is writing about 65 AD. This is about 30 years after Jesus' death. And he's writing to a church that is a mixed group of Jewish and Gentile people. And this church was starting to forget that Jesus is Lord. Let's read verse four. For a certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. They were forgetting that Jesus is Lord. They were hearing lies and they were starting to believe them. False teachers had actually slipped into this church and they were pretending to be Christians. They were acting like Christians but they were deceiving people by saying, everything that the apostles say about Jesus is true except for this one little thing. He's not the Lord. It was a really simple lie. They just had to change one little thing, but it was a very powerful lie. Jesus is a great teacher, nice guy, good prophet, great rabbi, but he's not the Lord. And actually this church 
some of the people would have actually remembered when Jesus died on the cross, because this was 30 years after the death of Christ. And they weren't even refuting that. They weren't even refuting his death on the cross, because people would have remembered that. They're saying, yeah, he died. Great example, humility, uh, sacrifice. But he's not your Lord. And this is a very powerful lie, but it's actually uh, a lie that I think we hear all the time. I, f- I feel like I hear people in Seattle saying this all the time. Like, Jesus is, is really cool, you know? Total hippie rabbi guy, long hair, beard, barefoot, uh, vegan, great teacher, teaches love thy neighbor. As far as vagabond rabbi hippies go, Jesus is the best. But you don't have to do what he says, right? Because that would be uncool. Like Jesus is cool as long as you don't have to do what he says. Then all of a sudden, that becomes very uncool. And that's the kind of mindset that was going on in this church that Jude is writing to. In the case of this church, forgetting that Jesus is Lord led to all kinds of problems. Uh, In this case, it led to massive sexual immorality in the church. These false teachers would actually lead communion services that would turn into orgies. And all these crazy things are happening in this church and there's all kinds of problems and it's tearing the church apart. And the sexual immorality that's running rampant in this church and the anxiety that we're talking about today actually has something in common. The thing they share in common is that they both stem from the same thing, forgetting that Jesus is Lord. And so Jude is writing a strongly worded letter to them to address this problem, and this is what Jesus tells them. I need to remind you that Jesus brought you out of Egypt. Let's look at that in verse five. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterwards destroyed those who did not believe. Some of your translations say, the Lord brought you out of Egypt. Some say, the master brought you out of Egypt. But the the Greek word in the original manuscripts is this word, Iesus, Jesus. He actually says, Jesus brought you out of Egypt. So what is Jude saying about Jesus here? Because this is his one, he decides this is his one rebuttal against the false teachers who are saying that Jesus is not Lord. He's saying that Jesus is God. He's saying, you know, you think that Jesus is just a nice guy, prophet, rabbi, teacher, an example of how to live. Jesus is the one who brought you out of Egypt. Jesus is the one who parted the Red Sea. Jesus is the one who told the water to come back together after the people crossed. Jesus is actually one, the one who drowned the unbelieving Egyptians in the waters that day. And these people would have heard stories about the Red Sea for generations. Their grandparents, their great-grandparents had told them the story about the Israelites crossing the Red Sea. And then Jude says to them, when the Red Sea was parted, Jesus was there. Does this remind you of another passage in the Bible? John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. When our creator formed the earth, Jesus was there. When our creator parted the Red Sea, Jesus was there. And on the day that those Egyptians gasped for their last breath, Jesus was there. And sometimes we forget. Sometimes we're starting to forget that Jesus is Lord. We forget that Jesus is our God. And the passage gets even more epic So let's keep reading. I'm going to read verse 5 again, but I'm going to continue this time. Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, 
afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he is kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Remember that it was Jesus who delivered you from slavery. Sorry, one second. Is that my mic? I might have a beard issue going on here. All right. Is that a little better? Sweet. Sounds about right. So Jude is saying it was Jesus who delivered you from slavery. It was Jesus who cast the rebellious angels out of heaven. It was Jesus who burned down Sodom and Gomorrah. And as John 1 says, it was Jesus who created the heavens and the earth. Jesus is your Lord. Jesus is your master. Jesus is your God. We need to remember. So Jude mentions the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And these people uh, reading this would have, would have really been blown away by this. And here's why. So I was studying this passage and I found two uh, ancient first century history books by a guy named Philo Judeus or Philo the Jew. Now that's a cool rapper name, Feel of the Jew. He could have totally been a member of the Beastie Boys. Uh, I think that it might be pronounced Philo. I don't know, I'm not a Greek scholar. Philo sounds cooler to me, I'm just gonna go with that. So, have you ever heard of Philo, this guy? Sweet hat, sweet earrings, just, a, just an all around awesome first century historian. Uh, you may not have heard of him. You may have heard of this other guy around the same time, Josephus. He's more popular, uh, another Christian historian living in the first century. Uh, Philo was a contemporary of Josephus. So Philo was, he was a Hellenistic, first century Jewish biblical philosopher. He's living at the same time as Jude and this church that Jude is writing to. And this is what I found that was kind of crazy. Philo says in two different history books that he wrote um, that in this time, there was still smoke rising from the site of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now that sounded crazy to me when I read it because Sodom and Gomorrah is estimated to, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah is estimated at 712 BC, and uh, this is being written in the 60s AD, and so that's like 1800 years later. But what Philo is saying is that there was sulfur buried deep underground and it just continued to smolder for a long time, and when people try to dig and farm there, smoke would rise. And that's pretty crazy. So he says, for the smoke which is still emitted and the sulfur which men dig up there are a proof of the calamity which befell that country. So Jude is basically saying, hey guys, do you see the smoke that is still rising over there? Do you see the crater in Syria where Sodom and Gomorrah used to be? Jesus did that. That was Jesus. That was Jesus' judgment. So let that be a reminder to us today and now. The same reminder goes for us. The next time we see smoke, let's remember that Jesus is Lord. And this problem escalates. The problem of forgetting that Jesus is Lord, it escalates very quickly. And this is where we see how our forgetfulness is similar to the forgetfulness uh, that this church is facing. The problem is, when you don't believe that Jesus is Lord, you start to try to figure out who is. Because we all believe in something, we all put our hope in something, we're all counting on something or somebody. And oftentimes, when we forget that Jesus is Lord, and we stop putting our hope in him, the thing we trust the most is ourselves. 
So when you forget that Jesus is Lord, you start to believe that you are the Lord. And the problem that this first century church is facing, and the problem that we are facing, is this lie. The lie that you can be your own God. And we hear this all the time. Uh, we hear this all the time in our culture. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Many of us have heard this famous poem. It's just totally false. But it sounds good, right? Like you read it and you're like, man, that sounds awesome. But it's just totally wrong. And we hear this all the time. You can be your own God. You can do whatever you want. You can do anything you want to do because you are your own God. You're in the driver's seat. You're in control. You're the master of your fate. Don't let anyone else tell you what to do because you are your own God. And so our anxiety comes from the same place that their sexual immorality came from. Our anxiety actually comes from the same place that our sexual immorality comes from. It comes from the place that our anger and our greed and all of our other problems come from. It comes from forgetting that Jesus is Lord and believing that we are Lord. So your problem is not your anxiety, your problem is your idolatry. And here's why you are anxious. You're starting to forget that Jesus is Lord and you're starting to believe that you are Lord. And you're walking around pretending like you're in control and we set up our own little kingdom that we've built and we're trying so hard to hold it together but it always just feels like it's slipping from our grip. And the reason it feels like that is we're just so terrible at being God. And when you're really bad at being God, then everything you build is always in danger. There's always somebody threatening it. And when things go wrong in our little kingdom, we get anxious and angry and afraid. And we're paranoid because somebody's always at the gate trying to put our little kingdom in danger. And here's one truth I've found about false deity is that when you're a terrible God, your kingdom is always in danger. When you're the guy in charge, things seem to break down a lot, don't they? When you're clinging onto things really tightly, it somehow always seems to slip through your fingers. Our little kingdoms are always shaking and trembling and the walls are crumbling because we're not very good at being God. And the truth is we just, we really don't have the strength to hold it all together. And the world would tell you, you do. The world would say, you can do it. You have the power within yourself. You can do it. You can make it happen. But Jude would say, you can't do it. You're not that strong. You can't hold it all together. And the reason is because you're not the Lord. Jesus is Lord. And Jude goes on to say that this lie, this false promise that you can be your own God, the lie that says that Jesus isn't God, it's dangerous, it's devastating, and it's actually a trap. He says in verse 12 and 13 that this lie, this false promise, it's like a waterless cloud. And there's a really powerful image that Jude uses here. He's writing to people who live in an agricultural society in the ancient Near East, which is where the Middle East is now. He's basically writing to subsistence farmers who live in a desert. People who spend a lot of time praying and hoping for rain to water their crops. And these people living in this desert, they would often see uh, something that we see on a really hot day in a vast blue hot sky, just one lone cloud. And these farmers would see this cloud and they would think, oh man, there's a cloud. It's gonna rain. It's gonna rain, then my crops will grow, and then my family will eat, 
We're going to be okay. But the problem is it's a waterless cloud. It's the illusion of a cloud. It's the ghost of a cloud. It's a mirage. And it's not going to rain. When you put your hope on a false god, even if that false god is yourself, you're putting your hope in a waterless cloud. And when we do that, it's dangerous. Because we can look up at the sky, we can look at that waterless cloud, and we can, we can hope that it's gonna rain, but we'll eventually find out the same thing that every false god worshiper in the history of the world has eventually found out. It's the same thing that the worshipers of Baal found out on Mount Carmel. We'll eventually find out that you can hope and dream and pray and chant and dance and beg a false god all you want, but it's never gonna rain. That God's never gonna provide for you. It's never gonna come through for you. Don't believe it. It's a lie. It's a trap. You know, I think about this a lot as a man with a family with little kids, uh, just as the provider for my family. I think about this a lot. Uh, I think about my temptation and my tendency to want to tell my family that I am their ultimate provider. And I want to leave God out of it. And I want to say, ultimately, I will provide for you. I'm going to make it happen. I'll get a better job. I'll get a raise. I'll get a promotion. I won't get laid off next time. This investment's going to pay off. I'm going to make it happen. But I'm not their ultimate provider. God is. And ultimately, I can't ask my family to put their hope in me. I need to ask them to put their hope in the true Lord Jesus. And the one reason that God gave me the responsibility of providing for my family is actually as a symbol so that when I would bring the money home into my house, it's actually a physical symbol that Jesus is Lord. It shows them that Jesus provides. He provided this week. He'll provide again in the future. It's a reminder that Jesus is Lord. So for those of us who feel anxious, Jude would remind us that it was Jesus who brought us out of slavery. He'd remind us to beware of waterless clouds. He'd remind us that Jesus is our true provider. He'd remind us that Jesus is Lord. But I don't wanna just stop there. I wanna move on to the second point. I mean, it would be kind of depressing to end a sermon on anxiety with just threats of starvation and annihilation. So we need to get to the good part. Point number two is the cure for our anxiety. And here's the cure. If we look at verse 24, it's one of those amazing places in scripture where Jude's theology turns into doxology, where his belief in God turns into worship of God. Doxa means glory. Uh, Doxa is the Greek word for glory. And in my simple definition of a doxology, a doxology is a statement, a proclamation of God's glory. And this is how the book of Jude ends. It ends with a doxology. It ends with Jude proclaiming the glory of God, proclaiming the indicative of who God is and what God's done. And I think that the cure for our anxiety is actually in this doxology. So when you hear the word doxology, you probably think of a song that we sing here at church. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. I really love that song a lot. I actually grew up in Georgia, and my dad was a preacher, and we were at this little country church. And if you grew up in the South, uh, in the church, anytime there was any kind of like a meal at church or anything, we would always like circle up, pray, 
and then sing the doxology. And it was really cool. The only weird thing is that now when we sing it here at church, I get really hungry. And it's kind of a distraction. But I really love that song. It was written by Thomas Kinn in 1674. And it's pretty awesome. But I think that the, jo- the doxology that Jude writes is even cooler. So here, at the end of Jude's letter, his theology turns into doxology. And this is actually another way of stating the indicative imperative principle that we were talking about earlier. What you know about God leads to how you live. What you believe leads to what you do. What you know about him leads to worshiping him. So here it is. Here is the truth. Here's the cure. Here's the indicative that can cure our anxiety. It goes like this. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Say amen with me. Amen. So the cure for our anxiety is actually in this doxology. The cure for us is believing what Jude is saying about who God is and what he's done. So the cure for us is the fact that Jesus is on a throne. The cure is the fact that Jesus is Lord. The answer to your anxiety is believing what Jude is saying here. The cure is the simple fact that Jesus Christ is our God and you are not. Jesus Christ is Lord and you are not. Jesus Christ has glory and majesty and you don't. Jesus Christ has authority and dominion and you don't. And Jesus is in control and you aren't. I really love the last line, how it says, before all time and now and forever. Jesus has always been in control. Jesus is in control now and he will always be in control. We don't have to create our own kingdoms. We don't have to pretend to be God. We don't have to pretend to be in control. We can rest in Jesus because he always has been, he is now, and he always will be. We can find our rest in him. And Jude also says that Jesus is our savior. Verse 25, to the only God, our savior. Christians, the reason that you don't have to carry the crushing weight of your anxiety is because Jesus carried it for you on the cross. He's carried the weight for you. He saved you. He's finished it. We don't need to live our lives as if there's something unfinished that we need to finish. Jesus finished it on the cross. And for non-Christians, do be anxious because the weight you feel will eventually crush you unless you turn to Jesus, repent, follow him, and let him carry it for you. Isaiah 53 says, he was crushed for our iniquities. He actually took that weight on himself on the cross and he was crushed by it so that you don't have to be. Believe that today, trust in him today. Let him carry the weight. For all of us, we don't have to carry this weight. Jesus can carry it for us. So you get to the end of a sermon and everyone is wondering, all right, what is the application? It's like we've been talking about the indicative thing for a long time. Now just give me finally the imperative, the list of things I can do to make sure that I'm never anxious again. 
Well, I have a really short list. It's only one thing, but there is an application to this sermon. So for everyone in the room, Christians and non-Christians alike, do this one thing. Every day, every situation, when you encounter stressors, when you're feeling that pressure building, when people are failing you, when you fail yourself, when you experience loss, when your friends leave you, when people criticize you, when you start to realize that this whole world will eventually fail you, do this one thing. Remember what Jude is saying about who Jesus is. Remember Jude's doxology. Remember that Jesus is Lord. Say it to yourself, preach it to yourself, sing it to yourself, but just remember that Jesus is Lord. Let's read this uh, together. Say it with me. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Amen means it's true. If you believe that's true, say, say amen with me. Amen. If we will just acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord and we are not, we don't have to be anxious anymore. We don't have to try to hold things together. We don't have to maintain some sense of control if we will just remember that Jesus is Lord. But I wanna close with this. Tradition says that in the ancient Near East, uh, in the first century, shepherds would sing to their sheep to calm them down. And I do that a lot with myself with this passage. When things get dark, when things get hard, when I get anxious, I, I, I say this passage to myself a lot. I, I recite it. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now, and forever. And that's been really helpful to me, a helpful reminder of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. But I'll be honest, there's sometimes when I don't even have the strength to do that one thing. When I don't have the strength to do something even as simple as remembering who Jesus is. When I don't actually have the strength to even whisper those words to myself. Sometimes things just get too heavy, too dark, I'm too anxious. But I've experienced something in the past few years Sometimes in those moments when I really, when I feel like I'm really backed up against the wall, when I'm feeling paralyzed by anxiety, when I'm just feeling fearful, I often hear the distant sound of a familiar voice and I'm reminded uh, of how shepherds used to sing to their sheep and I feel like I hear my, my Lord, my Savior, my shepherd singing to me. Come to me all who are weary and I will give you rest. I want us to take comfort in the presence of Jesus tonight because sometimes there's nothing we can do. Sometimes we don't have the strength to remember. Sometimes we don't have the strength to recite scripture. Sometimes there's no one there to remind us and we're all alone, and we're afraid and we're anxious. But I want us to take comfort in the fact that Jesus is with us. Jesus is Lord, and he's also with you now. Same Jesus who created the heavens and the earth, same Jesus who parted the Red Sea, he's with you. 
And he would say to you in the midst of your anxiety, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come to me, all who are weary, and I will give you rest. So friends, today, be comforted by the presence of Jesus, even if you can't do anything. Let us find our rest in Jesus today. Pray with me. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Remember, Jesus brought you out of Egypt. Remember, he has sought you as his people. Remember, he has saved you from your sin. Remember, remember him. Remember, Jesus brought you through the Red Sea.